Good evening, everyone. Great to be here. Um, thank you so much for uh, inviting me and, and welcoming me in. It, it was lovely to arrive here a, a few moments ago straight from the airport and to immediately um, to be asked to, to, be, to be prayed with uh, with some people. And um, it's wonderful to be here with a group of people um, who, who pray. I've just come from New York. I was there for a few days. At lunchtime today, I was giving a talk about Mary's Meals to a group of businessmen. And, and that, that's um, great because this work of ours is a, is a universal mission. And I love to share it with people of all faiths and no faiths, all people of, of goodwill. But when I do that, I, I, I feel sometimes like I'm only able to tell them a little bit um, of what Mary's Meals really is uh, if I'm not able to talk about the fact that this work is, is a fruit of, of prayer uh, more than anything. So I'm happy just to share a little bit with you tonight of, of how God's worked in, in my life and the lives of thousands of people um, through this unexpected, um, undeserved gift that is Mary's Meals. Um, can I just check that you're tuning into the Scottish accent? Can you hear me okay? Yeah, you're understanding me, good. Um, so I grew up in the Highlands of Scotland, a little village, middle of nowhere, 400 people up in the hills. And um, my mum and dad ran a little hotel, a little guest house there. And uh, we were, a, I suppose, a fairly devout Catholic uh, family. Went to mass every Sunday, said our prayers together as a family most of the time. Um, but it, that, in about 1983, our lives changed in a very dramatic way. I was 14 years of age, and we were sitting around our breakfast table one morning, and, and uh, my sister was reading a newspaper, and she suddenly said, there's a report here that the, the Virgin Mary is appearing uh, in Yugoslavia, as it was then. And uh, this was a report about the beginning of the apparitions in, in Medjugorje. And that little article in the newspaper led us to go there, um, and the week that we spent in, in that village in Bosnia really changed our lives as, as teenagers. And we came back home trying to live our faith in, in, a, new, in a new way. And in time, that, that experience led my mother and father to decide to turn their small hotel into a, a retreat center, a Catholic retreat center. It's called Craig Lodge Family House of Prayer. And really all they did was they opened our doors and invited people who wanted to come and stay with us and spend time praying to, to do that. It was kind of a crazy thing to do. It wasn't um, financially very sensible, but lots of people started coming and then it began to become a little bit more formalized. There was different retreats organized every weekend, different priests and speakers would come to lead those retreats. And then a little community began to grow in the village. Um, of Catholics, Catholic families who wanted to come and live together in fellowship uh, there. And that, that's gone all, on all these years. Still today, Craig Lodge is running uh, as a family house of prayer, and many people come from all over the world um, to spend time there in, in prayer and in, in quiet. So that's, um, that's kind of my background. I grew up in that place. Um, and I suppose in hindsight, looking back um, all these years later, um, I suppose the witness of my parents and, and the unusual decisions they made for God um, probably had some kind of an impact on me without me realizing it. But 
I certainly don't want to give the impression that I grew up all those years as some kind of holy young person because I was anything uh, but I grew up as someone who was I suppose um, greatly lacking in confidence, very shy. I, I went to university when I left uh, school and I lasted about six months. Uh, I just couldn't make the adjustment from the village to the, to the city and I came back home to the Highlands and I became a, a fish farmer, a salmon farmer. And uh, I suppose I thought I was going to spend the rest of my days in, in that village, um, salmon farming. Um, and as I say, I wasn't leading a particularly good life. Uh, getting into my early 20s, I, I, I didn't have a great deal of peace in my life. And looking back on it now, I think I was leading two, two lives. I was still, I never lost my faith. I was always going to Mass on a Sunday. Um, I was saying my rosary uh, every day. But there was this other part of my life that wasn't good. It was mainly in, in the pub and socializing uh, with people uh, who had a very different kind of lifestyle. And I was trying to live both those lives at once. And I, could, I couldn't get peace. Uh, I suppose I knew deep down that God wanted all of me, not just a little bit of me. So anyway, 1993, I was in, 92 in fact, November 92, uh, one wet, rainy evening in my village. I was down the pub as normal, having a pint of beer with my brother, and we were talking about this news bulletin we'd seen that evening. And it was um, about the war that was then taking place in, in Bosnia, that terrible, uh, brutal war. And I suppose we were both particularly moved because of our experience in Bosnia many years previously. And we began saying to each other, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just do something small to help the people there? And we began asking people if they would give us food and clothing and all those things that the refugees in Bosnia desperately needed. And about three weeks after that conversation in the pub, we found ourselves driving uh, right across Europe to, to Bosnia, a four-day a four drive, um, and delivering these things uh, into a refugee camp there. And I always say that was the first miracle in the story. It was the first time my brother and I ever hatched a plan in a pub that actually happened. So that, that was amazing enough. But I suppose I came back, having delivered that aid, came back to Scotland, to our home thinking really that I'd done my good deed. You know, I'd taken just one week's uh, time off work to do this and I came back home thinking it would be back to work on the fish farm as, as normal. And I came back to discover that God had a completely different plan because by the time I got home, all these things that we'd asked for, the food and clothing, they were pouring into our home, like there were mountains of them. All my father's outbuildings and sheds and barns were full, full of these things and they kept on coming and I suddenly realized it was going to be a lot harder to turn the tap off than it had been to turn it on. And so I, I, I prayed about it and I decided to give up my job and I sold my house and somebody gave me a small truck and I just said to God, I'll, I'll carry on doing this as, as long as there's a need um, and as long as people keep uh, giving. And I suppose in my mind I was thinking maybe I'll do this for a few months, maybe even a year, uh, and then I'll be back to, to work as normal. And here we are all these years later, I think 24, 25 years later. Um, and I suppose the reason why I'm still doing this work and that it's grown in so many incredible ways is really because that first story uh, of making an appeal on behalf of people who are suffering and just being overwhelmed by people's goodness. That, that's really been the story all these years since, 
all over the world again and again. I'm, I'm humbled uh, by people's goodness. Um, and that's really, in many ways, the story of Mary's Meals. So the aid never stopped coming. So that first year became several uh, years. And most of those early years was all about driving trucks back and forth to Bosnia constantly. And, and the truth is, I didn't really have a clue what I was doing. I could barely drive uh, a truck. Uh, it was a very blessed time for me. And again, looking back on it, I realized it was a real time of, of learning, learning many things um, that I think God wanted me to learn. And it was also a very blessed time because I met my wife um, driving the truck back and forward. She was a nurse from Scotland um, who phoned me. I didn't know her, phoned me out of the blue to say, oh, I hear you're driving aid to Bosnia. I, I feel like God's calling me um, to go to Bosnia and help as a nurse. Um, so I was driving there with a, a priest friend of mine um, and Julie came and joined us so we could introduce her um, to the people in the hospitals there. And um, she ended up becoming a co-driver of the trucks and it turned out she was much, much better at driving trucks than, than I was. I, I remember the first time driving out with Julie, we were driving into a city called Mostar that was being um, shelled, it was being bombed. Um, it was under siege and it, it, was, it was a terrible um, situation and we were taking medicines there to a hospital um, and even the hospital had been, had been shelled and had bullet holes all over it. And I remember driving up finally after driving four days from Scotland up to this hospital and, and um, I remember thinking to myself, I hope Julie's impressed by, by this. She was in the, the passenger seat along with the priest uh, friend and I was driving up to the hospital and there was a whole crowd of people outside to welcome us, nurses and doctors. And I was feeling quite proud of myself, to be honest. And suddenly as I drove up, I realized that they weren't waving their welcome. They were telling me to stop because I'd, I'd misjudged the height of the canopy outside the hospital and I drove the truck straight into it as if it didn't have enough problems without me doing that. So the early years was lots of, lots of mistakes, lots of just stepping out in, in faith um, and, and, and learning, I, I suppose, and lots of different things. You know, I remember um, every one of those trips I made, I used to ask a different um, friend or member of the family to come with me as a, as a co-driver for the trip. And I remember one time my father uh, came with me and my father is very famous in Scotland in the retreat centre for his hugs. He loved, he's a man of great uh, love, demonstrative love, and he hugs everyone uh, who comes to our home, um, which is great normally. But this time, when he was delivering aid with me, uh, we, again we were in a village that was being shelled, and uh, it was a home for children with special needs. And it was a very scary situation, because as we were unloading the aid into this uh, home, um, some bombs exploded nearby and the staff were telling us to unload and, and drive out of there as soon as we could. And so we unloaded the aid and I jumped into the driver's seat and I was revving the engine, looking in my rear view mirror, uh, wondering why dad wasn't jumping in. And I looked in the mirror and I could see him giving these big hugs to all the, the nurses before he climbed in. And, uh, and I wasn't too happy at the time. But I remember thinking years later when, when our Holy Father Pope Francis, not long after he became Pope, he, he talked, he used a term about the, the sin of efficiency, talking to people very often involved in charity work. And, and what he meant by that, I think, was that sometimes we can get so caught up in, in doing things efficiently, effectively, um, 
that, that we forget that it's a work of love, uh, first and foremost. And, and, and it was funny when he said those words, that, that incident that had happened years later with my dad popped into to my mind because my father was a great example of that. You know, and that's something I remember. And just a couple of weeks ago, actually, I was, I was asked to give a talk to a youth event in, in England, Youth 2000. I don't know if you have that here, beautiful prayer movement around adoration of the Blessed Sacrament for young people. And there was about 1,500 people at this event. And it was only as I was, I'd agreed to do it a few months ago, and it was only as I was driving to the event, I looked at my notes and I realized they'd asked me to do a, a talk called The Call to Holiness. And I kind of panicked because I'm not holy. Um, so I was, I was trying to, I kind of made that disclaimer at the beginning of, of, the, of the talk. But again, that, that, that incident with my father came into my mind when I was trying to do that talk because although I'm not holy, I really want to be holy. I, I really, really do want to be holy, um, as do we all. We're all called to that holiness. And I, and I think one of the great blessings in my life is um, how many holy people I, I've met doing this work. And, and for me, a large part of becoming holy is, is discovering more and more that God is is our loving Father, not a, not a distant God. And, and people who I meet who are really holy are people who really um, have that sense of, of, being God's, of being God's child, you know. And, and um, again, that is a great blessing that maybe we don't all have to have, a, to have a Father like that that can show His love demonstratively. But for me, that's so much um, about what God is for us, wants to be. Um, for all of us. Anyway, I, I digress. Those early years were all about driving the, the trucks back and forth. And then we started being invited into other, other places, um, Romania being one of them, um, and, and another country that was really suffering, suffering at that time especially because so many children there uh, were abandoned in those days, abandoned in hospital wards, and we were invited there to um, take aid in some of those children. And, um, they were abandoned in every sense of the word, children who were 12 years old who couldn't walk because nobody had ever picked them out of their cots for long enough when they were young for them to learn how to walk. And um, eventually we hatched a dream to take those children out of those hospital, that out of that hospital and we began building homes. We built three homes and I always remember the doctors in that hospital, some of them could see no worth in those those children, they were all HIV positive, they, many of them had disabilities and I remember the doctors almost mocking us. One of them said to me about this little girl when we were building our last home uh, to take her out. He said, I don't know why, I don't know why you're building a home for, for these children. That, that little girl, she will have died before you build that, that home of yours. I always remember going back three months later for the official opening of that third home to meet that little girl, Juliana, at the front door who was learning to walk by then. And she took me round her, her home, showing me, showing me her things. Um, that was about 10 years ago. Julia, Juliana died last, last month uh, as a young lady who had a beautiful, happy life uh, in that home. Most of the children we took out of that hospital ward who were dying every week at that time, most of them are still alive. Three of those girls are married with babies of, of their own uh, now. And just, just that, that miracle, just that project alone taught me so much about how, how love really can transform the very darkest situations. And it really encouraged me to, to go on, and we did. 
lots of different countries we began working in. And then in, in 2002, 10 years after that pint of, of beer in, in our bar in, in Scotland, um, I was working in Malawi for the first time. And, and that was the year that Mary's Meals was born. Um, it was a terrible year of famine there. We were there doing emergency feeding, taking food into villages where people were starving. And during that work, uh, I met this family, a local parish priest took me to, to meet them. And he was visiting them because the mother of the family was, was dying and, and the father of the family had already died. And, and she was called Emma and Emma was lying on her bare mud floor and she had her six children around her. And she said to us, you know, there's, there's nothing left for me now except to pray that someone will look after my children when, when I'm gone. And, and then I started talking to her, her oldest child sitting beside her and he was called Edward and he was about 14 years of age. And at one point in the conversation, I said to Edward, what, what, are, your, what are your hopes? What, what do you want uh, in, in life? And he said to me, I, I'd like to have enough food to eat and I would like to be able to go to school one day. And that was it, that was the extent of all his ambition, all of his hope at 14 years of age. And that was something that we'd encountered over and over again doing this kind of work. We kept on meeting children who were out of school because of hunger, children who were working or begging, just doing whatever it takes to put the next meal on the table and therefore missing out on, on school. So Mary's Meals just became really this very simple response to the words of Edward, that answer he gave me that day, and, and a response to the plight of millions of children like him who are missing school because of hunger. And that response is simply to provide one good meal every day in a place of education so that we meet the immediate need of the hungry child for food, but at the same time, we serve it in a place of education so that we enable them to come in and, and get that education that can be their ladder out of poverty. A very simple, uh, practical work. And from the beginning of this new work, we felt especially that this work belonged to our Blessed Mother and, and we gave it to her, called it Mary's Meals, um, and asked her um, as a loving mother to show us how she would have us do this, do this work. And Something else that we felt very strongly about from the beginning was that if this was really going to work properly, it had to be owned, first of all, by the local communities in which we were serving the meals, not, not by us uh, from outside. And so to begin with, we held some public meetings in villages in Malawi, and we said to the people that came, you look, look we've got this idea to serve meals in, in your school uh, for all the children in this area, but we'll only do that if you believe in this and, and more than that we'll only do it if, if you're willing to take responsibility and to volunteer your time to cook and serve those meals every day and immediately uh, those parents said yes this is this is what we want uh, for our children this is what they need and they began organizing themselves to, 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 to create a rota to take turns to come in and cook those meals and, and so we began um, about 200 children at the end of that famine year 2002, one small um, school. And almost immediately we could see it wasn't just a nice idea, 
it was, it was something that was really going to work because almost immediately children who'd never been to school before began coming because of that promise uh, of a meal. Um, and, and it was just an amazing thing. And then one of the neighbouring schools came to us and said, um, can we have Mary's meals uh, as well, please? And, and we said yes. And so it went on. And it's just gone on and on uh, like that all these years since. So um, just in Malawi alone, we're feeding well over 800,000 uh, children every school day. That's about 30% of the primary school age population in, in Malawi. It's having a massive effect uh, on that country. Um, and then we're serving meals in 12 other countries, mainly much smaller uh, scale. Um, places like Haiti that Ellen mentioned were, um, where Mike first came, and then um, India, and then mainly other African countries, Kenya, Zambia, um, South Sudan. Uh, lots of very, very different um, environments, different cultures, uh, lots of different situations, but always that same simple thing, one meal every day in a place of education uh, for the hungry child. And always we see it has the same effect. It brings the, the hungriest children into school. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't just help those children who were out of school. Many of the children who were in school before the meals were unable to concentrate and learn. Uh, nearly all of those children we feed, they never eat in the mornings before school. And before Mary's meals, they're expected to go a whole school day without eating. So of course, they find it very hard to progress and, and to learn. So it has a huge impact and we collect lots of data around what happens with academic performance, what happens with attendance rates. Um, and this work of Mary's Meals, it's a very, very practical thing. It's a work of the head and, and the heart. And both of those things are important. God's given us both of those things. And, and I spoke earlier about um, the importance of not losing sight of the fact that this is a work of love. Um, but it's also something that people all over the world are using their, their gifts, uh, their skills, um, to, to make this something very beautiful and and this work grows and and the reason we can feed so many children nearly 1.2 million children uh, would have eaten Mary's meals um, today around the world um, this work grows and is possible because people all over the world many of the best examples here in, in Iowa um, are, are supporting this work are, are wanting to be part of this of this mission um, of this of this gift, you know, and, and um, I think all over the world people of goodwill um, find it easy to share that vision that we have that that every child in this world should be able to at least eat one good meal every day in their place of education. That's absolutely possible in this world of, of plenty, in this world that produces more than enough food for all of us. And yet Today, probably around 18,000 children will have died of, of hunger-related causes. Over 59 million children out of school today because of hunger. And yet, as Ellen mentioned at the beginning, it costs us, on average, $19.50 to feed a child for an entire school year. I think there's no good reason why any child in this world can't eat every day. There's no reason why any child can't go to school, at least to primary school, at least to learn to read and write.
And yet, this year, maybe more than ever, it seems to me the suffering of children is just so, so great in, in so many parts of, of the world. Um, in Malawi today, this year is very similar to that first year I began working there, 2002. The crop in Malawi has failed catastrophically. They've had less rain this year than they have for 35 years. I was there a few weeks ago. I spent two weeks there. Nearly all that two weeks I just spent uh, in the homes of families there, talking to them about their situation in home after home. And this, that time of year, that was June I was there, that's normally the time of plenty in Malawi. That's just after their harvest, when normally their, their food stores are, are full. And family after family were telling me they'd already run out of, out of food. And a lot of those families I can't, I can't forget, I can't get out of my mind, particularly one family I met. Like many households in, in Malawi today, there's no adult there, no mother or father, no grandparents, three, three children living on their own. The oldest child was a girl called Yamakani, 12 years old, looking after her two brothers. They were called Promise and, and Amos, six years old and three years old. And they, they have one little field where normally most years they manage to grow some food. This year they grew one small bag of maize in total and they'd already, they'd already eaten it by the time I met them. And they were telling me how after school in the evenings they go into the fields, the neighbours' fields, looking for things left after the harvest, the cobs of, of the corn to eat. And they have one fruit tree uh, near their house that they were trying, a huge tree that they were trying to get fruit from, but they were scared because of snakes in the tree. They were throwing stones at it to try and get some fruit. And, and that was all they were eating, apart from Mary's meals. That was the one um, guaranteed source of food in their lives. Every day they were going to school and they were eating Mary's meals. And, and more than ever, it just brought home to me um, the, the importance of this work we do. You know, so very often, quite rightly, we talk about Mary's meals as something that transforms lives. We have a whole generation of people leaving school now, going on to further education and to paid employment and all sorts of things who tell us they never would have gone to school without those meals. But at another even more basic level, it's simply keeping children alive. We're saving thousands and thousands of lives um, through this work as well. South Sudan uh, today is another place where we serve meals, another place of horrible suffering, a place that I don't think gets, I don't know about here, but um, in Europe gets very little media attention. Recently, the, we, we partner there with the church, the Diocese of Rumbek, it's called in South Sudan, and while most of the charities and, and the non-profit organizations have all had to flee South Sudan, as always, the church is there, and, and we work with them in their schools providing um, the meals. And, and recently, um, I was reading the regular reports we get from there, and there was this statistic I just couldn't believe when I first read it, but it's, it's, it's true, unfortunately. It's, for an adolescent girl in South Sudan today, it's more likely that an adolescent girl in South Sudan today will die in childbirth than it is that she'll complete primary school. Hardly any children um, in South Sudan, girls especially, have the opportunity to complete primary school. 
It's a country full of horror today. Over 20% of the population have had to flee their homes uh, in, in the recent fighting. In the area where we serve the meals, many, many families arriving, sleeping outside and, and hungry. Um, and about three weeks ago now, just as their new term was beginning after their, their holidays, um, we realised to our horror that our area had been cut off completely. All the roads had been closed by, by the war and um, we had a horrible decision to make because the children were going to come back to school and there was going to be no food. And um, so we took this decision to fly the, the food in. Um, so I, I, I was very happy just to hear a couple of days ago that it's arrived uh, safely and those children are, are being fed. Um, it's added a little bit to our budget, but I know God will provide. He, al he always does. And, and for us, the promise is really important. The promise to those children and to their families um, that we won't let them down, that this is one promise that they can rely on. People are, who have so often been let down um, that they can really trust um, Mary's meals. So I, I suppose I just never... Um, I, I never lose this sense of surprise that I've ended up doing this work. Um, I was laughing when John introduced me at the beginning, mentioning that I, I once said I would never do public speaking, and that's true, I did say that. Driving the trucks back and forth to Bosnia, that's when people first started asking me to do public talks, and I always said, no, no. I used to persuade my mum or, or Julie when she became my wife to go and do the talks for me. Um, and, and here I am a few years later, and I, honestly, I love talking about Mary's Meals. I can't stop talking about Mary's Meals because Mary's Meals is, is this beautiful gift that God has given to the world, I, I believe. It's another um, sign of, of his mercy. Uh, in this year of mercy, it's been very special to listen to our Holy Father uh, reflecting on, on mercy, encouraging us to think about about our Lord um, as a God of, of mercy. And I noticed at the beginning of this special year of mercy, he dedicated this year um, to, to the Mother of Mercy, uh, to our Blessed Mother. And, and you know, who, who, who could better teach us about mercy um, than, than Our Lady? You know, in, in her life, um, in the little glimpses we see of her in the Gospel, it's always about mercy, the wedding feast of, of Cana, you know, and especially at, at the foot of, of the cross. So I've been asking her, especially this year, um, to show us how to be, to be merciful. You know, and it's, it's not a small thing for us to do this work in, in her name. It's a big responsibility, you know, and, and more than anything tonight, I would, I would ask you to pray for us. Um, that, this, that this work we do might always be done in a way that really honours her, in a way that, that, that points to her son. And, and I suppose that's one of the other aspects of Mary's Meals that I, that I love so much, is, is this universal mission. Everyone of goodwill in this world um, wants to see the hungry child fed. So many people um, rejoice at the fact that there's this simple, practical solution. But because we do it in, in our Blessed Mother's name, so often it gives us um, the possibility to, to evangelize, I suppose, really just through, through our actions, through this mission. When, I, when I'm uh, giving a talk to a, to a secular 
uh, group to businessmen like the ones in New York today or um, other groups like that. Normally I would just describe um, the work of Mary's Meals, how it works, how we feed hungry children um, without going into why it's called uh, Mary's Meals. And invariably at the Q&A at the end someone will put up their hand and say who's Mary? Is that your wife? Is that your mum? And it gives you this opportunity to say no it's it's Mary the mother of Jesus. Um, Did you know that she was a refugee? Did you know that maybe she struggled to to feed her son Jesus uh, when he was small when they had to flee to to Egypt? And and suddenly you can have this this dialogue um, about who she was and maybe about who her her son was. Um, so I, I rejoice at that. I rejoice at seeing all the people that come into this mission from so many different backgrounds. And when I think about Mary's Meals, I just think about it as a, a series of, of lots and lots of, of little acts of love. You know, not, none of us doing anything um, spectacular on our own. It's just when you put it all together, it's, it's creating this very amazing um, thing. When, when Cardinal Dolan in New York read, uh, read the book that I've written about Mary's Meals, um, he said the, the story of Mary's Meals is like um, the, a modern day miracle of the loaves and fishes. And, and I thought that was a really good description. That's what it um, feels like to me. So I just thank God for it, for this gift. And I thank all of you um, here for listening to the story. I thank those of you who are already supporting Mary's Meals in so many Uh, wonderful ways and I would ask you um, those of you who are maybe new to Mary's Meals to to at least pray for this work um, and maybe to get involved in it in in other ways because there's a lot of children um, still waiting uh, still waiting for us to come uh, with Mary's Meals so thank you very much for listening to me God bless